0: Well, I would invite you to open your Bible to Titus chapter 3 with me. As we return to our study of Paul's instructions to Titus, his disciple-turned-ministry partner. Titus chapter 3. Even though this is a letter originally written as a private letter between Paul and Titus, this was written directly to Titus, not to the churches as many of Paul's other letters were, it is beneficial for us because it contains instructions that Paul was telling Titus to convey to the churches in terms of what the churches should be doing in, in terms of leadership, as well as their personal conduct in the culture. And so what Paul wrote to Titus, the Holy Spirit intended for our benefit. Paul really had three primary tasks for Titus to accomplish before Titus could continue on to his next ministry assignment, which was to join Paul at Nicopolis, first, his task was to install elders in the churches throughout the island, men who exhibited Christian character and who could also teach sound doctrine and protect the church from false teaching and false teachers. That was his first task. Second, he was to help these believers who were saved out of a, an incredibly ungodly culture learn how to live in a godly way, now that they had been transformed by the power of the gospel. And they were to to live in a way that put on display that transforming power of the gospel. And then third, his task was to help these believers learn how to engage in the culture around them, the very one that they had lived in and were saved out of, in a way that reflects the same kind of love that God has for mankind. Now, the biblical authors didn't write in chapters and verses, but it just so happens that those three tasks correspond to what we have as the three chapters of Titus. And so here we are in Titus chapter 3, and let's read the text, verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Last time we looked at the imperatives that are given there in verses 1 and 2 of how we should relate to the government and all those in authority as well as anyone we encounter in our daily life, especially those who are hard to love. And then in our section for today, verses 3-8, through Paul explains why we should relate to those who are difficult to love in these ways. And the reason is because God saved us when we were impossible to love. The Apostle John summarizes Paul's point well in 1 John four eleven, where he says, If God so loved us, so we also ought to love one another. The way Paul walks through explaining our salvation in these verses allows us to organize our outline using interrogatives. Interrogatives are the words who, what, where, when, why, and how. And we see all of these being explained here following Paul's flow of thought. We'll look at salvation under these headings. Who or whom did God save? When? When did God save us? What? What did God do? What does it mean that he saved us? Why? Why did God save us? How? How did God save us? And since we've already used why, we'll end with for what purpose or to what end did God save us? We're going to dive right in and start with who. Whom did God save? And the answer is, He saved us who were His enemies. If you were to virtually ask any unbeliever whether people are basically good or basically evil, the answer you will almost certainly get is, well, people are basically good. For sure, if you ask them, are you basically good or basically evil? They will say with great confidence, of course, I am basically good. But God tells a different story. Look again at verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. This is one of several passages in the Bible that tell us the true character of mankind apart from Christ. Everyone not named Jesus the Messiah or who hasn't been saved by him can be accurately described in this way. Or more to Paul's point, everyone who has been saved by Christ used to be accurately described in this way. For you to believe the gospel, put your faith in Christ, and be saved, the first realization you have to come to is that you are a sinner. You are lost, and you're in a desperate condition. If you don't know you're a Savior, you'll never see Christ As the great Savior that He is. And so, all people who have been truly saved by Christ have to one degree or another recognized yes, I am a sinner. I have sinned against God. I am worthy of His wrath. And I've placed myself at the mercy of Christ, who alone is our hope for salvation. The difficulty most of us have, though, is that while we readily acknowledge the fact that we are sinners, we struggle to consider the true depth and extent of our sin. We know we need saving, that's for sure, but we're pretty convinced we were easier to save than other people. In fact, no matter what sins you committed, each of us could probably produce a long list of sins that we never committed and that, in our mind, make us higher and more worthy and easier of salvation than others who themselves are calloused and hardened sinners. As far as we're concerned, you and I are just your average day-to-day sinner. Not perfect, but not too bad. And because we tend to have this attitude, we love Christ less. Jesus asked Simon the Pharisee this question in Luke 7. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. That's over a year's wage and just over a month's wage. When they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. And so, yeah, so which one of them will love him more? Well, the answer is obvious and the lesson is clear. Those who have a greater sense of what they've been forgiven love Christ more. And those who perceive themselves to have been forgiven less, love Christ less. And they love people even less. Do you want to know what a key ingredient to your growth in loving Christ is? How to grow in your love for Christ? The answer is this. Grow in your recognition of who you were when God saved you. Come to a deeper more real recognition, understanding of your truly depraved state. Your love for Christ is in direct proportion to your understanding of who you were before Christ. So let's quickly look at this description here, and I would urge you to consider how these realities manifested themselves in your own life before Christ. Or if you're here and you're an unbeliever, you have not put your faith in Christ, maybe how these Descriptions manifest in your life even today. As you look at the text there, the first description of what we once were like, those who have been saved by Christ, we were once foolish ourselves, he says. Uh, This is to say we were unintelligent. We were dull-witted. We lacked understanding and insight into reality. Now, this has nothing to do with academic ability or IQ but rather the ability to see and think about life from God's perspective. The Spirit says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. The unbeliever lacks the fundamental capacity and capability of understanding the things of God, and so because of that, they are foolish, and we were foolish apart from the Spirit opening the eyes of the mind and giving life to the heart and shining the light of the gospel in the heart, we were incapable of comprehending even the basic elements of spiritual truths. So you and I, who have been saved by Christ, we were foolish, ignorant. We rejected the truth, and in many cases even mocked the truth. Second, he says we were disobedient. We disobeyed God, certainly by disobeying our parents and any other authority in our life. We went behind their backs, we lied, we stole, we cheated. In a host of ways, we rebelled against all the authorities in our lives. And in matters where there was no authority telling us what to do, we sought to live outside the domain of God's authority. We were hostile to him and we lived in rebellion against him. We were disobedient. Third, we were deceived, as he says there. We bought into all kinds of lies. We, we bought the, the web of lies that the world was selling us, trying to promote the world's system. We, we bought the lies of our own flesh that convinced us that the world should revolve around us. We bought the lies of the devil that lured us into all kinds of sin. We were deceived. Fourth, we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. One of the lies we believed is that if we saw something that was good for us, that we were free and we could choose whatever we wanted to do. And so if we saw something good for us, we would choose it. But the reality is we were enslaved to the demands of the flesh. Our sinful heart caused us to go after whatever it wanted and we couldn't escape the demands of our lusts. We even convinced ourselves that even pursuing the same thing over and over again would eventually satisfy us, but it never did. Fifth he says we were enslaved, or we spent our life in malice we spent our life in malice as an unbeliever, there was always someone in the world that we would be glad to hear if something had something bad had come upon them. We might even be happier if we were the the cause of that difficult state. We always hoped there would be something that would come upon someone that would cause them to get what was coming to them. We had enemies near and far. We were always living in malice. Sixth we spent our life in envy, he says. We were never content. We were always looking what other people had and wanting it for ourselves. So we'd get angry or depressed when we couldn't have what other people had. Or we found found ourselves in financial mess trying to accumulate everything that we wanted and satisfying the lust of the eyes. And then he says seventh that we were hateful A better translation would be that we were hated by others or that we were despised. And you can understand why. I mean, if you knew someone who was foolish and disobedient and deceived and slave to their lusts and pleasures, the the whole world revolved around them. They always repaid evil for evil. You probably wouldn't want to spend that much time with that person, would you? We were despised because of all of the ways in which we lived. Eighth and finally, we were hating one another, hating one another. We regularly found ourselves in conflicts with other people. We looked at others whose hearts were just like us, and we hated them. We mistreated people. We slandered them. We repaid evil for evil. We broke off friendships and relationships on a whim. This right here is the biography of every person Apart from Christ, the gospel we're going to walk through in the rest of these verses enables us to be honest about our sin and who we were before God saved us. And why wouldn't we be? Why wouldn't we want to uh, to agree with God as if to say, or in contrast, to, as if to say that God was wrong in how He judged us and He overpaid for our sin debt? Right? Why not rather be as fully honest as we can be, knowing that the more thorough our understanding of our sin is the greater glory God gets for saving us. If we were to take an honest inventory of our lives, not only would we become convinced about God's conclusions in terms of our outward behavior, but we would also see the inner heart that would be driving that behavior, and we would agree with God that we are greater sinners than we ourselves can fathom. If we knew ourselves the way that God knows us, we would agree with him that we deserved eternal hell. The gospel is offensive to those who don't believe it because it contradicts everything they think about themselves. And even as believers, some of you might be thinking, I don't know if that was true about me. Well, I'm here to say this is the word of God. This was true about you. The gospel is offensive to believers or to to people who think they are better than they really are. But to us who truly believe, who want to see ourselves through God's eyes, the gospel is beautiful because no matter how sinful we are, the glory of Christ and the grace of Christ has surpassed our sin as we sang about today. Well, that's the who. who God saved, He saved us who were His enemies and sinners. Consider the when of salvation. He saved us when Christ appeared. Look at verse four. And the kindness but when the kindness of God, our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. As I noted last time, perhaps a better way to translate this would be, or at least a more literal way, would be when the kindness. And the philanthropy of God appeared. This is now the third time that the Apostle Paul has used the word appeared, epiphano, here in Titus. And every time he uses it, it, it's in reference to the coming or the appearing of Christ. Look back at chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. There, Jesus is the manifestation of of the grace of God. Look at verse 13 there of chapter 2, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. There, Jesus is the manifestation of the glory of God. And then look again at verse 4 of chapter 3, but when the kindness of of God our Savior and His love for mankind or the philanthropy of God appeared, Jesus is the manifestation of the kindness and the philanthropy or the love of mankind of God. This is why John says in John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is also why Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because when he came, as he lived on this earth, he manifested the grace of God and the glory of God and the kindness of God and the love of God. The appearing of Jesus, as, he, as Paul says here, put on display the kindness of God. In Romans 11:22, Paul contrasts kindness with its opposite. He says, "Behold, when the kindness, excuse me, behold then, the kindness and severity of God, to those who fell, severity, but to you kindness." Now, what he's talking about in that context is the Israelites who rejected God experienced the severity of God because of their rebellion and sin against him. They experienced the sharp and the weighty judgment of God as a severe punishment. But to those who have been saved by the grace of Christ, they have experienced the kindness of God, the the gentleness of Christ, the goodness of God. The appearing of Jesus also put on display the the love that God has for mankind. Again, it's the Greek word philanthropia. That the eternal Son of God became the Son of Man and walked upon this earth is, is one of the manifestations of the love of God because He could have rightly and justly destroyed this earth. That's what we deserved. But instead, He came to this earth to save the lost. Jesus demonstrated the love of God even toward unbelievers. Do you remember when he spoke to the rich young ruler? And the rich young ruler loved his possessions more than he loved God. And Jesus knew that this man was just about to walk away from him. He was just about to demonstrate his rejection of God. And the text says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Consider this it is the love of God that allowed this rich young ruler to walk away rather than be judged in that very moment. He looked the love of God in the face. He looked at the Savior in the eyes. He says, I'd rather have my bank account. He was worthy to be judged in that very moment. And yet it was the love of God that allowed him to walk away and perhaps have another opportunity to repent. Of course, the greatest love, the greatest demonstration of the love of God is demonstrated at the cross, right? 1 John 4, 9. By this, the love of God was manifested to us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. As he hung on the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. That's what propitiation means. He satisfied the wrath of God such that the requirement of the law, that death is required for sin, was satisfied. And there's nothing left for us but the grace of God. God loved mankind and Jesus manifested that love. That's when God saved us, when Jesus came to this earth and manifested who God is in kindness and love. Next, consider the what of salvation. The what? Look at verse 5. First three words. He saved us. He saved us. He rescued us. He delivered us. He, he kept us from harm. The first occurrence of this word in the New Testament is in Matthew 1, when the angel comes to tell uh, Mary that she was about to have a child or, or be with child by the Holy Spirit. And he said, you shall call his name Jesus Because He will deliver His people. He will save His people from their sins. Jesus said in Luke 19, verse 8, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You see, it's our sin that kept us far from God. And thus deserving of the wrath of God. Paul said in Romans two five, But because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Those who have not been saved by God are compounding their sin and the wrath that they deserve more and more until the day that the judgment of God is revealed. The scripture gives us a variety of vivid descriptions of what that wrath is will look like that's coming us. And it doesn't do it to frighten us, but to warn us. Listen to this description from the prophet Zephaniah. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. No one's going to be standing up on the day of the Lord with courage. The greatest warrior will weep on that day. He goes on, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind. They'll be staggering about, confused and dazed, weak, because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. All the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end. Indeed, a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. That's not a day you want to be living. You want to be with Christ on that day. That's a description of the judgment of God on the earth in that final day. Then there's the final judgment, the lake of fire. Revelation 20.11 says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the de- and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, and every one of them according to their deeds." then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is, where, is the place where Jesus described that the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, like the burning bush that wasn't consumed, Those who have not been saved will live forever in the lake of fire and not be destroyed. And one reason the punishment never ends is because those who have not been saved will continue to, to sin perpetually in hell. When Jesus says, as he often does, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, what he's saying is that in hell, everyone will at once forever be weeping over their torment and gnashing their teeth in anger at God. People deserve eternal hell, not only because they are sinners by nature, and not only because they are sinners in practice, but because they will perpetually sin in hell. Friends, hell, the lake of fire, is what you and I deserve. It's what we deserve. Remember, we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We were spending our life in malice and envy. We were despised and hating one another. And so we deserved hell because of our sin against God. If God counted our sin against us, after we died in this body, we would receive a resurrected body fit for eternal torment. But for all those who look to the cross and repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, their reservation in hell is canceled. Scripture says that Jesus rescues us from the wrath of God. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. So instead of receiving a body fit for hell, we will be fit with a new body fit for heaven and eternal life. Instead of living in eternal anger, we will live in eternal love and joy. Instead of weeping forever, we will rejoice forever. Instead of living in pitch black darkness forever, we will live in the light of the glory of God for all eternity. Friends, God saved us. He saved us. He rescued us from His wrath. He delivered us from death and gave us life. As far as we've seen the who... The when and the what. Next, consider the why of salvation. Why did God do that when we don't deserve it? Well, the why, He saved us because of His mercy. Look at verse 5 again. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. According to His mercy. Paul explains the basis of our salvation in negative and positive terms. Negatively, we are not saved on the basis of righteous deeds. Having broken the law of God, we stand guilty before the just judge. And that status of guilt cannot be undone by any amount of righteousness. In fact, any attempt to justify yourself, even though you've already committed a violation of God's law, only adds to our guilt because it rejects the word of God, which says that we can't do that. So doing good deeds to make yourself right with God is actually an act of rebellion against God. The scripture says that even our righteousness is like filthy garments. It's like bringing a tribute to a king to try and earn their pleasure. But that tribute that you bring is a soiled garment of biological waste. The attempt to distract from and evade from our sin Only as to our condemnation, it's repulsive to God. Scripture repeatedly says that salvation is not of works. It says, by the works of the law, no man shall be justified before God because all stand as guilty. The murderer can't stand before the judge and get off because he happened to love his wife and his kids. The The thief can't appeal to his good grades in school. The Abuser cannot call attention to his success at work. There's nothing that we can do that can distract God from our sin. So God didn't save us because of anything we've done. Instead, he saved us, it says, according to his mercy. Mercy is not not giving what is deserved. Not giving what is deserved. It is God looking at the desperate plight of sinful man and instead of relentlessly pressing down his wrath, he relents and removes it. Scripture says God is rich in mercy. Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Did you know that Mercy is the only attribute that scripture says God is rich in. I agree with Dane Orland in his book Gentle and Lowly when he says, quote, In his justice, God is exacting. In his mercy, God is overflowing. Unquote. When God judges a person, he does what is right out of his perfect holiness and justice. He punishes sinners according to the requirement and the demands of his wrath. His punishments never exceed what is right and necessary. But when it comes to his mercy, the floodgates open and there is no limit to that flow of his mercy. Lamentations 3 says, the Lord's mercies indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God saves sinners not because they deserve it, not because you and I deserve it, but because he wants to put his character on display. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word for mercy is the primary word that's used to translate hesed, which is in the New American Standard translated as loving kindness. And it's the term used twice in Exodus 34, verse 7, where God is proclaiming His name to Moses, putting His glory on display. And God says about Himself that He is abounding in loving kindness or mercy. That He keeps loving kindness or mercy for thousands. Now, I didn't comment in verse 4 where it says, God, our Savior... But it helps to know that God isn't just our Savior because He saved us, though that is obviously true. God saved us because He is a Savior. That's just who He is. He saves because He's a saving God. He is not a judging God who saves. All of His attributes are in perfect alignment with one another. But the emphasis of Scripture It says that we can rightly say that God is a merciful and saving God who is just. That's what God says about himself there in Exodus 34. So we ought not to think about him as a judge who might save, but as a savior who will judge if we don't repent. And more than that, Even once He has saved, He continues to flow mercy upon mercy out of His endless storehouse to those in need. God saved us because of His mercy, not our righteous works. Consider then how God saved us. Look again in verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by... The washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ our Savior. Those, there are two descriptions here of how God saved us in this text there's the procedure of salvation, what God actually had to do to us, namely regeneration by the Spirit, and there is the means of salvation what made the procedure possible, namely, through Christ's work. Now, when we speak about the work of the Spirit in regeneration, that's a a term that we use all the time, but it might interest you to know that this is actually the only time in Scripture, here in Titus 3.5, where that technical term is used in regard to salvation. The Greek word is a compound word that really means uh, to, to be born again or rebirth. And when you hear that language, then there's all sorts of passages that speak of the same concept. We read it earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1. But keep your finger here and turn over to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, perhaps a familiar passage for most of us, where Jesus uses this language of the new birth as he speaks to the Pharisee Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, but didn't seem to be going along with all of the the hatred and the jealousy of the rest of the Pharisees. This was a man who had questions. And so he wanted to talk to Jesus, but he didn't want anybody else to know that he wanted to talk to Jesus. So he came to Jesus at night when he wouldn't be observed. And Jesus says this to him, starting in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? His mother's womb and be born, can he? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. You see what Jesus teaches here is that if anyone wants to see or enter the kingdom of God, there has to be a fundamental change that needs to take place in the heart. And that change is not just an alteration or a modification, it is a transplantation. We don't need spiritual heart surgery. We need a heart transplant. Now this should not be a surprise to Nicodemus, nor should it be a surprise to anyone else who knows the Old Testament, because this is precisely what God promised to do in the new covenant. What Paul describes in, as uh, washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, God promised all the way back in Ezekiel chapter 36. You don't need to turn there, but here's what God promises in the new covenant He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a, spirit, a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." When God saves a person, it is as though he opens up their spiritual body cavity, takes out some things, their their heart and their spirit, which are dead, and puts in new things, a new heart and a new spirit, which are alive, such that it's not just merely fixing something that's broken, but it's a whole new person. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come and with that new heart with that new spirit comes new desires and new loves and new abilities and new awareness we are now seeing where before we were blind we're now hearing where before we were deaf we now have the capacity to respond to to god's word to believe it to understand it to know it Now, we might still struggle with some of our old sins, but we're not bound to them the way that we used to be. We no longer love them. We now delight to do what is right. We now love God and his word, and we love his standard of righteousness. When it comes to the things of God, we see beauty where before we saw ugliness. When it comes to sin, we now see ugliness where before we saw beauty. Salvation includes forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God, but in order for those things to be possible, even before that, salvation is fundamentally regeneration, a remaking of a person's spiritual soul that the Holy Spirit does in the life of every person he saves. Without that work of regeneration, we would still love our sin. We we would still be enslaved to our lusts and pleasures. We would still continue to hate God and all that that God says, and so we need that work to be done, and that is what God does when He saves us. Now coming back to Titus 3, the second way that Paul describes the work of salvation is the means by which regeneration becomes possible, and that is, as you can see at the end of verse 6, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The work of Jesus Christ, His perfect sinless life, And his substitutionary death on the cross is what makes salvation possible. Because Jesus lived a righteous life, his righteousness can now be imputed to me and we can be be declared righteous. God treats those whom he saves as if they had lived Christ's life. It's not, justification is not just as if I'd never sinned but rather just as if I'd lived Christ's life. Because Jesus died a substitutionary death, our sin is paid for. The wrath of God is removed from us and God washes us clean. Jesus Christ is our Savior because He drank the full cup of God's wrath that was due to us. As an infinite person, He endured the infinite wrath of God and satisfied the righteous requirement of the law. Through his death, we are saved. That's how God saved us. He regenerated us and he justified us by the work of Christ. So the interrogatives of salvation taught in this passage are who? God saved us who were sinners. When? When Christ appeared, putting God on display. What? He rescued us from the wrath of God. Why? Not because of our righteous works, but because of His mercy. And how? By the regenerating work of the Spirit and the substitutionary death and righteous life of Christ. Finally, consider to what end? To what end? This is the ultimate why. Uh, For what purpose did God save us? And the answer is, He saved us to be His and to imitate Him. Look at verses 7 and 8. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. The purpose of salvation as described by Paul is twofold. First, That we would belong to God, and second, but in belonging to God as his adopted sons and daughters, that we would join the family business of philanthropy to the world. Now, speaking of the purpose of salvation here, Paul is not being exhaustive. He said in Ephesians chapter 1 uh, that the ultimate end of God's work of salvation is that God would be glorified through the demonstration of his grace. In Romans, at the end of his eleven chapter gospel presentation, he ends with these words, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Salvation has the ultimate purpose of putting God on display so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or as it says in Ephesians 3, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all Generations forever and ever. Amen. So God's glory is the ultimate purpose of salvation, but Paul's particular focus here in Titus 3 is the purpose of salvation in terms of the impact on the believer's life today and forever. Now, we saw these two purposes when we looked at chapter 2, verse 14, where it says that the Christian purpose is to be a people for God's own possession. Who are zealous for good deeds. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and here in verses 7 and 8, Paul gives detail as to what those good deeds look like. But notice the language here in verse 7, how he says that we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the purpose that you were saved, to be made an heir according to the hope of eternal life. Becoming an heir of eternal life is the same concept as what he said in chapter 2, verse 14, that we would be a people for his own possession. It is to be brought into the family of God, to be made a heir with Christ, a joint heir with Christ, who is the Son of God, not in the sense that we become equal partners in the Trinity, but in the sense that all of the benefits that come to sons and daughters of God also apply to us. Listen how Peter describes this. We read this earlier in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Becoming an heir according to the hope of eternal life means that your eternity is secure and it is glorious. When it comes to our lives in this world, it's amazing how being secure or feeling secure and feeling insecure about one's future dramatically changes one's experience in life. The person who feels secure experiences peace and joy And contentment. They're free to make choices and take risks. They sleep well. Their mind is not occupied with things of the future that are outside their control. On the other hand, someone who feels insecure doesn't sleep well. They're constantly thinking about how they can take control or retake control of their life and future. They're always on edge. They can't afford to take risks, and every decision has to be agonized over, and every situation is viewed through a dark cloud of uncertainty. It's a miserable life. The greatest insecurity mankind has is the fear of death and what happens after you die. Hebrews 2 says that humanity is enslaved to the fear of death, and that fear and uncertainty wreaks havoc on lives today, and we've seen that over the last couple years so vividly in our world. Along with the insecurity of our health in a prosperous nation like ours, there's also the insecurity of our economic future. Have I saved enough for retirement? Will I be able to provide for my family? Will my business survive? Will my company lay me off? There are so many ways we can wrestle with insecurity, but beloved, we need to know that through Christ, our eternity is secure. We have become heirs of God according to the hope of eternal life. And so no matter what happens in life, no matter what suffering I experience or what challenges I face or how long or how short I live, what awaits me is a glorious eternity. No matter how difficult life gets, we can't even begin to compare the weight of our suffering to the weight of eternity with God Forever. A differential is like taking a grain of sand on a balancing scale and putting the grain on one side and then putting a a boulder on the other side. I mean, no one in their right mind would try and figure out, I don't know, is it worth it to persevere for Christ? No, what we ought to do is sit back and set our minds on things above where Christ is. We should ponder the glories of heaven. Even what might it be like to walk on streets of gold? What would it be like to live without the the sin in my soul, without conflict with those around me? Most of all, what would it be like to have face-to-face fellowship with God? That's how you deal with the insecurities you feel today. You embrace the security you have forever God saved you to secure your eternity. Second purpose he saved you for is so that you would, in in having your eternal inheritance secured, the people of God are then freed up to be his philanthropic representatives in the world, if we can put it that way. This is to say that in the same way that out of his goodness, God shines the sun and sends the rain on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, his people and his enemies. We are to be reflectors of his goodness to all those around us. We see this in verse 8. You can see it there. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Again, we saw that in chapter 2, verse 14, where he says that we are to be zealous for good deeds. What good deeds should we be doing? Well, among them should be the things in chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. We should be obedient to government. We should be ready for every good deed. We we should malign no one. We should be peaceable and gentle, showing consideration for all men. With our salvation accomplished, By God, our eternity is secured by God. We are now freed up to engage in this world, to be his philanthropic representatives in the world. We don't have to worry about what am I going to do? What am I going to eat tomorrow? How am I going to live next week? We don't have to worry about what the government's going to do because our our eternity is secured. We don't have to worry what other people are going to think about us because we're sons and daughters of the King of Kings. We don't have to worry about the suffering we're going to experience in this world because we will live forever free of suffering. We can humble and die to ourselves and we can forgive because we have been forgiven of an infinite debt that we owed to God. But I would encourage you to consider Paul's logic here in verses 1 through 8. Again, he begins verses 1 and 2 with a list of imperatives that we walked through last time. As those who are God's possession, this is how we should live in the world and relate with others. But then in verse 3, it starts with the word for or because. And so everything we've studied from verses 3 to 7 is the answer to why should we live this way. And so we can generally say we should live that way because God saved us. But think even more specifically about this. The Holy Spirit doesn't just say, God saved you, so live this way. Rather, the Holy Spirit reminds us of who we were when God saved us. Again, it is when we were foolish, when we were disobedient, when we were deceived, when we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despised and hating one another, it was then that God extended his mercy toward us. It was then that God loved us and rescued us from his wrath. So when you wake up in the morning and you see someone that is hard to love, you need to remember, I was hard to love when God saved me. When you parents have to tell your kids a thousand times, The same thing, you should remember, God was patient with me in my disobedience. When someone mocks you because they believe lies, you need to remember all of the crazy things you believed before God opened your eyes to the truth. When you're trying to help someone who just can't get over their problem, you need to remember that you were enslaved to lust and pleasures when God saved you. When people slander you, you need to remember that you blasphemed God, and yet he saved you. When people treat, hate you and treat you with contempt, you should remember how you were hostile to God, and yet he saved you and rescued you. Knowing who you were before Christ, what your nature is and how that nature manifested, And remembering that it was in that very condition that God poured out his love and his mercy. And he transformed you. Answers the question, why should I treat those around me with mercy and kindness and love? Not only that, it empowers us to do it. And it gives us joy as we do it. Now, I've called these last two messages the philanthropy that changes lives. In our sin, we often think that repaying evil for evil is going to be the way to get what we want. That we can powerfully exert ourselves on another person if we tell them what for. Give them a piece of our mind. Show them how much they've hurt us. But true power was demonstrated by God, who loved us while we were his enemies. So if you want to have a powerful effect on those who are hard to love around you, do what God did. Love them like they've never been loved before. Show kindness and do good. Speak well of them. Bless them. Joyfully obey them if they are an authority. Seek to reconcile them if there is sin, uh, reconcile with them if there is sin between you. And as Paul says there at the end of verse 8, this is good and profitable for men. Let's pray. Father, along with the Apostle Paul, I pray that you would grant us according to your the riches of your glory, that we would be strengthened with power through your spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to all the fullness of God. May it be true of us, Lord, that as the Holy Spirit expands our ability to comprehend the love of Christ poured out on us in our sin, that we will be empowered to fulfill your calling on our life, to imitate you and being your representatives and the conduit through which your love flows. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen.